Hello and welcome back to Business of Film. This is a crafttruck.com podcast. My name is Jesse Eichmann and today we are joined by the guys from New Artists Alliance, John Suits and Gabriel Cowan. Uh, I should let you know that the top half of the podcast, really the first 10 minutes or so, it's a bit spotty. Gabriel was calling in via his uh, Skype phone, so every time somebody called him, his Skype phone went on mute. And so there's a little bit of bumpiness there. Uh, It's only for the first 10 minutes. And uh, certainly the information that Gabriel shares and the information that John shares uh, will make up for it. I promise you. These guys are awesome. They started their career doing micro-budgeted films, and each time they do a new project, they just step up their game. Be it knowledge, contacts, budget, cast, and they share it all with you. So enjoy this podcast, and uh, thanks for listening. All right. Hey, guys. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Uh, so before we you know, dive into all the cool things that we're going to talk about today, maybe you can just take a minute and introduce yourselves to our audience. My name's Gabriel Cowan. And my name's John Suits. So, Gabriel, John, uh, how did you guys meet? We met uh, in 2005. Uh, we were both in the film directing program at CalArts getting our master's degrees. And uh, it was a really small cl- class. I think it was, how many guys was it, John? Well, it was like eight and a half. <laughs> there was one guy that was there, but he wasn't officially in the program. Okay, because I thought he was just really short or something, but but no. <laughs> he actually had, had a very, very low voice. Uh, yes. Yeah. That's what he was known for. His, so. his low radio voice? Yes, exactly. I guess as we were talking before we were on the air, uh, his voice compared to Gabe's low radio voice was like 10 octaves lower. He was way down here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, Sam. So uh, you guys met at, uh, met at film school, uh, and then did you start New Artist Alliance right out, right out of the gate? What, uh, how did you get going in the film business? At the, uh, we made a couple of movies together that um, first year. I was John's cinematographer on something we actually shot on film, which is this old antiquated form of shooting movies that most people listening probably don't know about. But um, we were forced to shoot something on actually on celluloid. And uh, I got to I got to shoot this thing for John, and he had this very smart idea of shooting it all in one shot. So that made my job really easy. Um, and then he uh, was a cinematographer for me on a project at the end of the year, um, and it was a like a half hour short film that we were doing, and. You know, we sort of did the math at the end of that project and said, well, if you can do a half hour short film in a weekend, we could shoot a feature in a week. And um, something like, you know, six weeks later, we wrapped production on our first feature. And what was the name of that that movie? It was called Breathing Room. All right. So that's so that's back in 2008, if I'm not mistaken. That was 2006, oh, okay. actually. Oh, you filmed yeah. it. Okay, you filmed it in 2006. Yeah. So we started. We started film school in 2005, um, and then 2006 we we shot this uh, first feature, and uh, all our teachers were like, "Don't do it. Go be a you know an intern on a big budget movie. Go find out how the big people." 
boys do it. And we were like, no, but we want to, we really want to try to make a movie. And John had already directed two features at that point. So, <laughs> yeah, so all it, it, no budget or story. <laughs> But uh, features. And on this one, on Breathing Room, we had a really big budget. We had something like twenty thousand dollars. Yeah, it was like we didn't know how to spend it all, but but uh, we found a way. SAG found a way to take it, most of that from us. Yeah. <laughs> so take me through then your your thinking. You've you, you've you've made this um, this film oh. twenty thousand dollar feature film. When you went into that process at the beginning. Was that purely for the purpose of your own, uh, I guess, film school out of film school out of film school, or were you making it because you had bigger uh, a bigger goal for it? You wanted to get it distributed. You wanted to get it, you know, into film festivals. What was your thinking in making that particular film? Well, we did make it. Am I still on? Because I went on hold for a second. The, yeah, the technology is blinding. Okay, good. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think we did make it with the idea of getting it out into the marketplace and hoping to sell it. Um, some mentors of all. Now he's gone. Oh, hold. Now he's on. <laughs> am I am I back? Did you hear me grunt? No, we didn't hear you grunt. Okay, so what's happening is. When when uh, when a phone call comes in, which has happened twice on this uh, during the Skype thing, it puts the Skype on hold, and then I have to jump from one program to another. So um, I'm not sure how to tell the telephone not to you, ring. I don't know how to, that that's a thing because I've had that happen before. Yeah, I'm not sure how to tell it not to do that. Um, um, but so so some mentors of ours said, "Hey, you guys should you know, make a horror film because those are the easiest ones to sell." And John had an idea, and we kind of got together and we plot in the cafeteria and we plotted it out. And uh, something like ten days later, John had the first draft of the script because he's an extremely slow writer. Yeah, and and uh, you know we we took it from there. Um, but and then when we finished, that same mentor said, "What?" Uh oh! And then he's making phone calls. But I need to switch over to. Uh, okay. okay. I need to switch the computer. I think. I need to switch the com- the computer. This is, this yeah. Is a sign of of, uh, uh, of things to come. Yeah, or yeah. what our, our day is like. Lots of phone exactly calls. right. If you want a window into the entire world, yeah, however many yeah. minutes it's been, three phone calls. But yeah. I'll, I'll just finish this thought and then figure out how to get to the computer. But that same uh, this is this is really good advice to young filmmakers. Um, the same person gave us the advice to find a series of sales agents, find who the acquisitions director or manager is at those companies. And write them a personal letter. So we actually snail mailed personal letters to all of these people. Hey, dear so-and-so, dear Travis, we really like what you did with, you know, bloody Valentine six and would love for you to consider our film, you know, for your repertoire for next year. And that process got us actually a lot of response. I'd say, 
something along the lines of 80%, 70% of the people that we wrote to responded and made offers and wanted the movie. And so we ended up hooking up with a company named Imagination Worldwide, who we still do business with, and a guy named Travis Stevens at that company found that first movie, who we just made a movie with called Cheap Thrills. And that's uh, the way a lot of you know relationships start, and we you know, got into festivals and got to sell that movie and get to make more movies. So let's talk about that. Um, I guess that process of the, the festival experience since you bring it up, uh, I, cause I notice a lot of the films that you've made and, and I do want to talk about this in, in much more depth are for lack of a better word, micro budgeted films, at least in the last few years, obviously you've got a new slate of films coming out that I can see in IMDb and we'll get to that later. But in the earlier phase where you were doing, I guess, these micro budgeted films, did you, did you go into it with the idea that I have to get these into film festivals to get these out there? Or did you have a different approach? Because they all seem to be market driven films. Like you said, your, you know, your, your mentor said, make a horror. So you went out and you made, you know, a whole bunch of these genre type movies and, so I'm just I want to I want to get your thinking in terms of festivals, genre films. What does that kind of you know all come together for you in terms of you know how you go about your your business of producing? Well, I think at the time uh, we weren't really thinking about festivals very much at all with them. Um, at the time, it was like let's make a movie and make money on it uh, was kind of the goal. And then uh, after we did you know breathing room and we're able to do that. Um, then we wanted to try to make something that looked kind of more big budget. So we did, uh, we both did thesis films that were dramas or, or I did a drama and gave it a documentary, uh, and found out that those are not worth any money in the marketplace. Um, so that was a, a good lesson. And then we went back and did a genre film that Gabe directed, uh, which was this sort of sci-fi thriller called growth that uh, we shot at Martha's Vineyard. And with that one, we decided, you know, we wanted to make it look and feel more big budget, like a, like a real movie. And, you know, I think there were like 200-some visual effects shots. There were aerial shots, underwater shots, and, you know, all sorts of, like, crazy stuff. Um, a whole and, sequence shot in Korea. Yeah, a whole sequence in Korea. And, you know... And so we, we did that and, and had a good experience with that and again came out through Anchor Bay and sold through the world. And then sometime after that, we started we decided to decide that we really wanted to focus uh, on developing properties like with the scripts and started thinking more about the festival world um, and not just selling the movies. Because with all the movies that had come before, you know, we kind of rushed through the whole process and were like, you know, like with Breathing Room, it was, I think, was it three weeks after we started writing the script we were shooting or four weeks or something like that? So, <laughs> yeah. you know, it was, uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of time to hone in on the, uh, the intricacies of the script. So we kind of decided to change our approach uh, at some point. Our first film under our new concept of how we wanted to get movies out there was Extracted. So, Which premiered at South by Southwest 2012 and is uh, distributed through Phase 4 here and is now available on Netflix. 
Awesome. Everybody go check it out. Uh, <laughs> and buy the DVD. Um, yeah. So before we talk about Extracted, let's go back to growth for just a second, because the budget on that was, I'm assuming it was another micro-budgeted film. What, what was the budget, and how did you go about getting what seems to be a tremendous amount of value you talked about? CGI, underwater, shooting in you know uh, Asia. Uh, what was your approach to doing a micro-budgeted film for, again, what was the budget? <laughs> it was a few hundred thousand dollars, so it was a big step up from the, you know, the first movie we did was in the $20,000 range. The next two, our thesis films were more in the $50,000 range, and then this, we decided to spend a few hundred thousand dollars on it and, you know, get a few more investors and things like that. Uh, we shot it in Martha's Vineyard, so we had um, this this beautiful island. Um, we shot. It was one of the very first movies ever shot on the red camera. The red, you know, was thought to be a myth, and then it came out, and it was this 4K camera, and it completely, you know, changed, basically revolutionized independent cinema. And um, so we were definitely, it was on build six or something. It was on a very, very early build of the software inside of the camera. It was really buggy. I think the first day of our footage, which which was some of the best footage with this incredible steady cam operator, you know, just somehow got lost and we had to send it back to red. Um, but the the approach with visual effect shots which was a real challenge in there was to just find somebody young and passionate and talented who had you know the latest computer and had been basically raised on after effects and um we found a guy named Paul Stack and uh, who had a team of i think four three or four other people um at a company called Thinkwell that w- um <clears throat> I think it's the first company to use Maya uh, to... to show their clients architecture projects, so they, they make um, they make uh, theme parks around the world, and so they'll go to their client and they'll say, "Hey, do you want to see what your theme park would look like at sunset in you know in this kind of environment?" And they say, "Yeah," and they fly them through. Well, this was in 2008, and the whole economy had collapsed, and all of their projects got put on hold. Um, all of these billion dollar theme parks. So they just, but they had all these Maya computers and they had these artists and they just kind of wanted to keep the lights on and keep people working. And so we found a way to have the um, economic crisis of 2008 benefit the film. And uh, they did, they did an incredible job. Now, in terms of being able to hire your crew and did you, I mean, did you fly them out to, uh, uh, what was it, Korea that, that you shot in, or did you get a local crew there? Well, we shot in Martha's Vineyard, uh, and there was a sequence that we did in Korea, which I'll talk about in a second. We flew out um, some of our keys. We flew out the DP. Obviously, John and I were there. Our producer, um, Ami Clark, was there. I'd say, what, what did we fly out, like 10 people or something, John? Yeah, somewhere around there, and then I think some more actors, too. Oh, right, and our actors, who all yeah. who we casted, most of who we cast in Los Angeles. Um, yeah. And then the Korea sequence was, we thought we would shoot it in Koreatown, but when we got back into town, we were kind of looking through where we were with the budget. Um, we had something like $2,500, and so we're trying to figure out how to get this day or a couple days of shooting in Koreatown, and 
Um, a friend of mine who had edited the documentary that I made uh, is is from South Korea, and uh, his father was flying him out there, and he's also a DP. So he's an editor, and he's a cinematographer. And I said, well, while you're there, could you look into what it would cost to hiring a crew and renting equipment and actually doing this? And maybe I could direct via Skype or via, you know, um, uh, iChat. And we looked into it, and sure enough, we ended up shooting this whole you know, maybe five or six minute sequence, four or five minute sequence in Korea um, via iChat. That's a, that's a, that's a great tip. In terms of it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, take me through then to your next film, I guess, which was Extracted. You seem to go about that, I guess, from you said that that was a festival driven project that you want you want to do that specifically to get into festivals to raise awareness well i think that at that point we kind of yeah we it wasn't necessarily we're saying oh we you know we this is gonna be a festival film it's only for festivals i think it was more about making uh stuff we could be proud of you know like trying to really work on the script um you know and with the goals of rather than just taking it straight to market which is what we've done with all our previous films where you know, we make the movie, then we bring it to the American film market or to, uh, you know, EFM in Berlin or to the Cannes film market. Well, we wanted to first try to, you know, start at a festival and hopefully sell there and then take it to markets for international. Um, but so that one we found um, an early version of the script that had been written by uh, Nier uh, Panery, who also directed the film, and we worked with them on it for about... I guess it was about eight months or so um, to really try to get all the pieces functioning and then went out and did it in a very micro-budget way um, while simultaneously also developing this other project, Static, which we shot shortly after it. Um, but those are kind of the first two under this new philosophy of, of you know, um, you know, it was first it was, can we make a big budget? And then it was sort of, can we make a big budget? and really focus on all the story elements, and those are kind of the two, first two on that. New have, have, it, have it look big budget. Right, right, yeah, sorry, <laughs> look big budget, not big budget. <laughs> so, what yeah. were, uh, so what were the budgets for those, when you say not big budget, what is, in your mind, at that point in your career, what, what's not big budget to you? Long so this is, this is the answer, that, that is the answer, crickets. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, we may, I mean, it's, it's a tricky thing. We want to be, um, forthcoming with what, you know, with what the realities are, but we're also sort of not supposed to talk about exactly what we make things for anymore. So, so virtually all of our, virtually all of our films have been made for less than a million dollars. Um, and let's just say that extracted was made for much less, much, much, much less than a million dollars. So yeah. okay, so then you know, budgets aside and numbers aside, your philosophy when it comes to let's just talk about I guess uh, the the casting process because you're doing arguably obviously at this point you know micro budget films micro budgeted films. Hey, this, you know, this, hey, this is Jeff Hi from and I'm on this. I'm on this. Oh, and I don't know how to put it on pause. All right, so now we've got a. 
<laughs> coming in. We're trying to keep it exciting by uh, uh, introducing special guests to the. I, I think this is Gabriel's tent guy who's come for his party. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> party. Uh, I'm, I'm going ju- to jump back in, uh, uh, in in a few minutes. Fantastic. Okay. Thanks, Gabriel. Okay, thanks. Uh, yes. So, so, okay, so I guess l- let me just reframe the uh, uh, question. You're doing micro-budgeted films. One of the challenges, certainly, when doing a micro-budgeted film, is, I'm sorry, I'm package coming in, or is it heading out to FedEx to pick it up? Gabe's um, uh, mute, Gabe. You can press mute. Oh, maybe you just did. Maybe you just did. Okay. So, okay. W- one of the challenges, one of the challenges with. Uh, micro-budget films is casting. Can you talk about how you went about the casting process uh, for, you know, these upcoming films that you were getting into? Yeah, so so after we did Extracted, um, you know, that was a film that, again, we were really proud of it. You know, we uh, workshopped it at the IFP Film Week and then, you know, a guide in the South by and everything. But after we'd finished it, we noticed that you know, when we were going out for talent, it was a script we were really proud of and we thought we had something neat to make, but we couldn't get, you know, we called up all the agencies. We tried to um, get clients and stuff like that and um, and we couldn't get through to anybody. You know, it'd be somebody that was like, you've never heard of in a million years and we're calling them saying, hey, we'd like to cast them as the lead of our movie and the agent tells us, oh, well, they don't work for less than a hundred grand a day. You know, um, and so it, we found ourselves kind of really blocked in terms of getting the talent we wanted to get. So, um, which obviously it's also really limiting when you're going to distribute your movie. If you don't have recognizable actors, um, the amount you can get in MGs, meaning minimum guarantees from the, the domestic side and internationally, it's, it's much smaller no matter how good the movie is. It's just kind of the reality of, of, the you know the marketplace especially after dvd kind of fell out um but but so um after that we teamed up with this company um caliber media and and dallas sonier over there and jack heller um and we they kind of told us like they their management company they also were making movies and they were friends with all the agents and and um all the people at the agencies and they kind of told us at the time that they would you know, come on and executive produce the film with us and that they would kind of get us by the gatekeepers of the agencies. And, and rather than when you contact and you want to get an actor, having the agent say, oh, no, they, they don't work for less than 100000 or $500,000 or whatever, um, they would kind of turn the actor, the, the agent so the actors that they're on our side and they're telling the actors, hey, you should do this project. And that kind of made a big difference Um you know, from then, from there forward, learning that, and also, you know, learning, there was a thing about the philosophy of, you know, paying scale to actors, um, where, you know, we had always thought, uh, just as an example, like, let's say you're going after some actor who usually makes $500,000 on a movie, and um, you go and you offer them, you know, $15,000 or $20,000, even let's say if it's $75,000 to do your movie, They'll look at it and they'll go, wait, this person's offering me $75,000, but I usually make $750,000 on a movie. Why would I take such a big pay cut? That's stupid. I'm not going to do the movie. But 
um, it's sort of this, this, the psychology of it is if you then go to that same actor and you offer him scale, like let's say it's $100 a day or $268 a day, whatever scale is, they go, wait a second, I usually make $750,000 and now someone's offering me $100 a day. Um, and then they kind of, it puts them in a different mode where they're thinking if they do the project, they're doing it as an art piece and not for money. So they're kind of more likely to say yes to something that low budget than they are if you're offering them $100,000 or $75,000 because then they look at it as it's way below their rate. But if it's literally almost no money, then they look at it as I'm an artist and I'm doing something creatively rather than just for money and then they feel better about it. So so that was kind of a big, uh, you know, in terms of learning that, it was very helpful kind of moving forward, I guess. First of all, that's great advice. And if I just, I guess, take the the two takeaways that you just mentioned there and just sort of distill them um, just for the sake of doing that so we're clear on exactly what you just said, uh, because I think there were two really important things there. One being get an executive producer or somebody that already has relationships involved in your project to help cut through uh, to the, the managers and agents to get to cast. And two, offer actors, you know, a, a, an amount of money that makes them not think they're doing it for the money. Right. And and, it, and it's definitely, a, you know, a big piece of that is you have to have the gatekeepers on your side, you know, because ultimately why when we are contacting these people you've never heard of and they're saying, oh, my client doesn't work for less than a hundred grand. It's because as the agent, they don't get paid unless their client gets paid, you know. So if they're working for a hundred bucks a day, the agent's seen $10 a day of that. Whereas they're working for a hundred thousand dollars, you know, the agent's seen ten grand. So they don't have much motivation to help you out if you're not paying their clients. But if you're doing a cool project and they know that this will satisfy their client creatively, who's also you know maybe on a TV show or doing something else where they're making good bank, and they know that this project will make their client happy and that they'll be taken care of, it it, it definitely. Um, changes their philosophy a lot of the time and and that's kind of so that was the start of the process and at this point you know we've worked with caliber a bunch of movies where they produce a bunch of movies with us um but we also you know now have gotten to the point where we've you know developed good relationships of our own with all the agencies and you know we've gotten a reputation for you know always if we say we're going to do a movie we actually do it which a lot of times these things fall apart and you know also they know that there's a certain level that you know, the movie will be at and that their their clients will be taken care of and they won't have to answer to their clients later. And they're like, why the hell did you suggest I do this movie? And so that has a lot of power, uh, you know, in terms of when they're just trying to find things for their clients, maybe outside of the space they usually work in. And that's another big, you know, thing in terms of trying to get actors is, you know, offer them a part that they don't usually get offered. Um you know, like, because if you're if you're offering somebody that always plays the you know bad guy uh, role, you know, or the a hole role or whatever, and you're you're casting him as the bad guy a hole because you're like, oh, I've seen him do this before, he's not going to say yes. But if they if you offer the guy who always plays the bad guy a hole the the role of like a loving father, you know, then they go, wait, this is a chance for me to break out of my mold and show what I'm capable of, and that's another thing that's very enticing. Uh, to actors, you know, um, so it's 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 definitely tricky sometimes when we're looking for actors because we know that you know you always think of like oh you know it'd be perfect is this person, 
But that person's probably not going to do it because they're always doing that role that they're perfect for, you know. Um, so that's that's been another sort of piece of the puzzle too. But it's it's a lot of it is just sort of figuring out the psychology of it and and uh, you know what you have in your script that actors will respond to, um, and then on top of that, you know what there are in the roles that actors will respond to, and that's kind of been part of when we've been developing these things as well is is really making sure. And there's good arcs and good characters, and you know whether the film's a genre or not. We try to have the films be more character driven with a genre backdrop, um, because you know again, actors aren't looking to do slasher films or you know snuff film type things and stuff like that. So so anyway, that's just kind of a lot of the different things we take into account and look at when we're you know picking projects and going after actors for the projects. That's great. Um, when it comes to getting your films financed. What is your approach to that? Are you involved with sales companies at the front end uh, and then trying to take your films to market to get pre-sales? Are you working with a group of investors? Uh, specifically, obviously, when doing you know uh, movies of a certain budget level where you're not necessarily you know in the five or ten million dollars and you know there's a whole infrastructure for supporting that kind of a budget level when you're doing you know, films under a million dollars. I'm curious about how you go about, you know, financing, um, financing and packaging th- that side of the equation. Yeah, and and it's, I mean, that's kind of been a big thing with what we do as well. And a, a big reason, you know, why we're doing these movies at a lower budget is after we did growth. Um, I actually was hired to direct this movie called Storage, which I think is now called Second Take. Um, and then, you know, I had wanted to get and you know, Gabe and I both talked about, but I think I was more pushing Gabe, I think saw the vision more so for these low budget films at the time. And I was thinking, I want to do a $5 million movie because then I can pay off all my student loans. So, you know, we spent a, a decent amount of time with this one project trying to raise $5 million for it. And, you know, what we found is that, you know, you get one piece of, um, from, you know, in Louisiana, they're going to give you these tax incentives and this person wants to put in money and this person wants to do this. And, you know, we always felt like, oh, we're so close to making it happen. And now looking back, realize we're never anywhere remotely close to making it happen. Um, you know, but that's, I think that the danger when you get into that territory is it's very difficult to get $5 million to make a movie. Um, you know, and, and I think that's what people don't realize too is, you're looking at a lot of these movies that are coming out now, and they've got. Um, did I go away there for a second, or was I still there? Still there. Okay, the screen went to sleep, so I wasn't sure if that meant that the computer did. Um, but the, um, you know, there's. I think the belief is if I put more money on screen, or if I spend more money on the movie, I'm going to make more money. And I can't make a, a movie that's worth anything unless I spend a bunch of money. And, and that's really not true. Um, and, you know, so you see it, like, especially if you're just coming out of film school, you see a lot of people that are like, I'm making my first movie for $2 million or a million dollars or whatever. And first off, that's very difficult to raise because there's also movies for a million dollars or less, you know, or for $500,000 that have huge names in it that are like A-list talent and big directors, and so to think that if you're just fresh out of film school, you're going to be chosen to do that, it, it's, you know, it, you're really lowering your odds, but but also even if you are chosen to do that, you know, if you make that million-dollar movie and, 
you know, you hire a bunch of talent and pay them a bunch of money, but you're probably not getting the, the quality of talent that you would because you don't, you haven't established a reputation yet or maybe didn't approach it quite in the right way, then you're going to go to market to sell that movie and, you know, not exaggerating, you're, you're probably be lucky on the U.S. side to sell the movie for $50,000. And we've seen that with a lot of friends and a lot of people we know in the industry where they'll make a movie for, you know, a, a lot of money and sell it for one twentieth of what they made the movie for. And, and you know, that's not a, a self-sustaining model. So kind of what we do is, you know, assess the projects, assess their value, um, and make sure we make it at a budget where we feel it can be profitable. And, you know, at the beginning, we were kind of flipping them, where with Breathing Room, we sold the money, we used money from that to make growth and so on and so forth, and also had some additional investors. And now a lot of time, it's, it's you know, we go back to uh, investors we've used before, you know, um, because we've, we've managed to, you know, for the most part, make money on our films, which makes it more appealing to an investor than if they put in a bunch of money and, and lost all of it. You know, then you can't go back to that person for your next movie and say, hey, we're doing another movie. Would you like to invest? Um, and then Gabe and I have also now been doing, because we've had so much experience with it, sometimes where we're just kind of brought in as producers on films to be the kind of field producers where we're not responsible for finding any equity or for any in, an investment uh, it's just more so just to produce the film at a low budget. So uh, it's kind of been a combo deal with, with with those now. And have you been working with sales companies in advance of making your films? Uh, will they give you information, sort of help you in the casting process, or help you again in the financing process? I'm just wondering, when it comes to your, your choice and selection of material and cast, uh, how symbiotic is your relationship with potential, you know, sales companies on that on the front end? Well, I think it, you know, it, it obviously every project project's unique, but because we're doing them at these lower budgets where we just pick a project and go make it, we don't do the pre-sale thing. I mean, the pre-sale thing at, at the markets is really, you know, more so for projects that are in the millions, um, you know, or over a million. Um, it's it's not as big of a uh, thing or are very common for for lower budget films, at least in our experience. Um, and so there's there's that portion of it. Um, and for us, you know, obviously we are trying to figure out what do we think this film will be worth. Um, but it's 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 a very uh, it's a shockingly subjective uh, thing where if you ask one company, you know, there's certain actors that are worth money internationally. And it's very few actors, and it's a it's just a very short list. And then beyond that, you'd be shocked with actors that they say like, "Oh no, no, they have no value foreign," where you would think for sure they would. And you know, there's some people, some companies go, "Oh yes, this actor has value," and the other company goes, "Oh no, the actor has no value." And a lot of times, it just comes down to whether they've heard of them or not. And it's just it's it's a you know, it's it's. I think it's a lot in a lot of ways. There's definitely elements. Obviously, if your film's action, it's worth more money. If it's drama, it's worth basically no money. Foreign, you know. So there's or family films are worth more money. So there's definitely genres that can help you guide it, and you know if you have certain elements. But a lot of it is you know kind of having to go with your gut of what you think it is based on past experience, and you know. Um, 
and not assuming that you're going to make the best movie ever that's going to premiere at Sundance and win the festival and so on and so forth. And I think that's a mistake a lot of people make is where they're, you know, they're budgeting the film as if it's the very best possible scenario and version of the film. And a lot of times, no matter how great of a team you assemble, the film doesn't come out as the most amazing thing ever or quite how you want it. And then if you were planning on that, you know, again, you get yourself into trouble. But so in terms of, you know, sales companies, we, you know, we usually now just kind of pick our projects and then, you know, uh, usually after we've shot them is when we start approaching sales companies and talking to them and showing them footage and, you know, and, and it's more so to in picking the projects, we want to pick things that we think, will make their money back, but our, our larger motivation is we want to find things that we think are good and that we're passionate about and that we, you know, want to invest a lot, of, a lot of time in because it is, you know, always a, a huge commitment whenever you pick a project because it's going to be a part of your life for, you know, at least a year, uh, you know, even though if you're doing other things simultaneously. So you just want to make sure you're picking something that you're going to be excited to be a part of and to work on, you know? So, um, I think that's kind of been a big piece of it for us. So I, I need to ask you, tell me about bad Milo. How did that movie come about? I, I, I don't know if that fits into any one particular box. I mean, obviously it, it did the festival circuit, but it, just if you, if you could take a minute and give our audience the pitch for bad Milo and how you came about deciding to go about, doing that project i I'd, I'd love to hear that story well it's yeah it's definitely uh you know yeah when the project was pitched as it goes you know it's a movie about a, an ass demon and you know or a guy who has a demon living in his stomach and when he gets stressed out it goes out and kills people and so you hear that and some people are like that's the worst movie i've ever heard of and some are like that sounds amazing and we've experienced that a lot when we're pitching it but you know uh we kind of immediately both were really into the humor of it, um, you know, and, uh, yeah, I think, it, and also at the time when we got involved, they had a rendering, just like a sketch of what Milo would look like and seeing the kind of gremlin throwback aspects and, and all the stuff, even in that earlier version of the script, um, you know, I think we were immediately just, just kind of thought it was funny and, and, you know, it's a crazy movie. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a little bit different than some of the things we've done. But again, you know, that's where I don't think, you know, there's not really one type of project we're looking for. It's more so looking for things that we like, you know. And, and in the case of uh, Bad Milo, which at the time was called Milo, um, you know, it just it, it it just was funny and it appealed to us. So we, we um, were excited to be a part of it. Now, in, in your process of getting films out there, and yeah, I just kind of want to move the conversation more to the, you're, you're done with the project, uh, you're, you're working with a sales company, now you're interested in getting your films distributed and out there. Uh, can you talk about your experience in that, in the distribution side? So are you of the mindset that once you've done the film, you just let go of it, give it to the sales company, let them try and sell it to a distributor? Are you, do you try and be actively involved in the distribution of the, of, of the film? Just if you can just, you know, talk a bit about your experiences on the distribution side uh, of things once you're, you know, once you're done production. Yeah. I mean, it's, and again, this is, it's, it's different for each project. Um, 
but but we generally you know want to be obviously it's you know you finish the film you sell it and you sell it around the world and in around the world once it's sold it's very difficult to be involved in the process you know they kind of each territory does its own crazy thing and then you see really funny posters for your movie and really funny trailers and dubbings and all that stuff so on the international side, it's kind of once it's out there, it's out of your control. At least that's been our experience. But domestically, you know, um, it's something that especially more so on like our last, I think, ten movies or nine movies, uh, wanting to be involved in terms of, you know, uh, seeing what the, the art for the campaign is going to be you know, giving notes and working with, you know, on the trailer stuff and, and really kind of knowing what their plan of attack is. Um, you know, obviously they, they're experts in their field and they're going to, they usually know best, but it's just nice to kind of be a part of that experience and give your, you know, give your two cents and, and, uh, kind of try to collaborate with them and, and, you know, hear what the philosophy is and why they're choosing to do certain things. I think that's a big, piece of it that we've been a lot more interested in on the our, on our more recent films whereas like with breathing room you know we sold it and and then we saw it come out you know and that was that was kind of it but um but yeah so it's you know um and it's also important when you're picking a distributor you know because you're trying to pick the best home for the film and that's not always the one that's offering you the most money or offering you the best terms or the most theaters, you know, theatrical commitments or, or markets, you know, um, it just, you know, and for each film, it's going to be different, but you're always just trying to find the place where you think it's going to do the best, you know, it's going to be the best place for it. Um, and that's, you know, that's kind of the biggest decision you make on, on the distribution. Um, and, and so do you find with the whole change in terms of, you know, uh, the VOD landscape, uh, you know, the, the whole world's changing so rapidly, holy crap, we, we can't keep up with the world right now. Um, is it going to be a VOD release, a super VOD release, a Netflix release? Do, do I want theatrical? Uh, do, does that impact you at the front end in any way? Are you thinking about, you know, are you thinking about whether a movie is going to have a life uh, as you know, as a theatrical movie, or as this is going to be a you know a, a, a VOD movie, or I'm making this specifically for you know a type of market. Does the does the you know that the, the changing landscape impact you as a producer? Well, yeah, I would I would say that the funny thing though is by the time you shoot the movie, the landscape has completely changed when you're going to sell it. So. I think that's something too to be very careful about with when you know when you go to a market and it's like found footage movies are huge this year or zombie movies are huge this year or vampires are huge this year then everybody goes and makes vampire movies and then the next year there's way too many vampire movies so werewolves are huge you know and I think that's a big thing that if you're trying to make something for what the market currently is you know then you're kind of following a bunch of people and by the time your movie's done you're one of, you know, thousands. Um, so it's, it's a very dangerous pattern. So, but, you know, that being said, I, I think the, basically the, it seems like where we've been at with our, our more recent films. And I think the space that we like to live in now is kind of that day and date ultra VOD, uh, releases where, you know, it's either, uh, comes out in 15 markets or, you know, and, and, and obviously those are largely propelled by VOD numbers, 
and VOD is the space right now for independent film, you know, where there's real money to be made. Um, you know, obviously DVD is very small now. Um, so that's kind of, I think, realistically and, and seems to be the case, that's where our films are, are mostly headed right now. Um, whereas before, you know, with our first few, we were just like looking for straight to v- DVD titles, you know, just to kind of have the type of thing that goes into Blockbuster and Hollywood Video, these things that, you know, no longer exist. Um, you know, that was kind of more the goal. And now we're looking for films that can have a little theatrical component and, you know, and also come out on VOD. And it seems like the hot thing now, too, as we're doing deals is, is these kind of, um, it seems like certain distribution companies are making exclusive deals with certain, you know, uh, uh, companies like with DirecTV or Comcast or Time Warner Cable. And that seems to be an, a, a newer thing again, where that's, that's part of, uh, the thing where you, you know, where you make an exclusive deal with DirecTV and then DirecTV commits to marketing your film more, you know, so there's, um, that's still with the theatrical, but rather than it being on every video on demand platform, you, you pick one provider and then they promote your movie for you kind of. So that seems to be a thing that's at least to us newer hearing about it. And, uh, an interesting thing that's, you know, on the up and up. Are, are you guys leveraging social in any way for your projects? Do you, do you find that, uh, you know, obviously in the, in the, in the independent space, you know, in this whole, uh, raising money on Kickstarter and trying to promote films via, you know, social platforms like gather or tug or any of these other, you know, crowdsourcing, uh, social spaces, shall we say, uh, is, is, has that impacted you at all? Do you, do you, does the social media right now, is it just sort of like, yeah, it doesn't really factor into what I do or, or is that, you know, a big part of what you do? Well, uh, it, it should be a bigger part of, of what we do. Uh, you know, I, Gabe's a little bit more savvy with the stuff than I am. Like I don't really use Twitter. I think we, we have an NA films on Twitter. Uh, you know, we have an account, but you know, we've seen how important it is. Uh, and, you know, we actually, one way we do look at it is when we're casting actors, we look and see how many Twitter followers they have. You know, that's one component of many we use in measuring, you know, uh, what you know when you're trying to establish the value of an actor. Because if they've got a million Twitter followers, that means if they say, hey, watch this movie in theaters or, or on video on demand, a million people are going to see it. So that does have... Uh, some you know inherent value. The, the other thing that's really important with Twitter that we learned about at South by Southwest in 2012 with our film Extracted is at the festivals. Everybody at the festival is reading the Twitter feeds to decide whether to see a movie or not, or whether a movie's a hit or not. So it's like right after your movie's done, you immediately know what the response was based on all the people tweeting out and based on what those people say, it, it pretty much largely decides the life or death of your film at the festival. Um, because then everybody's on Twitter trying to decide what movies to see. And even sales agents, I imagine, are looking at Twitter to see how, you know, how the audience responded and if they want to buy the movies. So, if you, you know, it's, it's kind of a funny thing, but it's, you know, that's the place where it's felt, I felt the most impact of it is whenever at a film festival, um, you're just like anxiously, you know, refreshing or whatever you do on your Twitter feed thing to see how the audience has responded, um, to the film, you know, and we've heard stories too, from some 
friends and sales agents about, you know, the, they're showing a movie at Sundance and in the middle of the film, some people start tweeting, oh, this is terrible, I'm walking out and stuff like that. And that has hugely hurt the sale of the film and the reviews and the life of the film because people start seeing on Twitter that people, you know, during the middle of the movie, they're getting their review already and, and making a decision. So uh, it's, yeah, it's a little scary with the power of, of social media, I guess. That's fantastic. I mean, both those points, you're actually the first person that we've spoken to on the show that that's brought up those two specific points. One, looking at actors and to establish their value because at the end of the day, you know, you, you need to promote your movie somehow and you need to break through to an audience somehow. And this story about, you know, using Twitter and, and its impact during the festivals. I mean, both those things are, they're really insightful. Um, in fact, uh, does that, do you, when it comes to the sale of your movie, I just want to, I just want to extend that that thought process a little bit further. Um, when you're looking to get your movie, I guess downloaded, bought, are you actively involved with the? Let's say, have you ever actually gone through the process of working with an actor to get them to push it to their uh, to their community of followers? And have you actually seen any kind of translation between? Twitter followers of cast and the sales performance of your film, or is that just, are you just kind of just taking that at, at a gut level right now? It's, you know, I think it's really hard to know exactly what the effect or what everything is, but it is more at a gut level. And it's, you know, it's one of many components that we're, you know, obviously first and foremost, it's do we think this actor will be good? But, you know, when we're considering people, that's just one of the many factors we will look at, um, you know, and yeah, I mean, they do, uh, with a lot of our releases now, you know, the actors tweet about it or or at the festivals and, you know, bring more attention to it. When the movie's coming out, if you have all your actors, you know, they generally, either the distribution company or the publicity company, whoever's, you know, working on that tries to get all the actors to, to tweet about it and, you know, to keep doing updates and stuff like that because you want it to kind of be, to raise awareness for the film. And that's one of, again, it's, you know, it's one of many, many things uh, that the, those companies are doing, but it definitely is a component to, you know, trying to get the film out there. Um, but, yeah, in terms of what the effect is, it's, uh, at least for me personally, it's all just kind of a gut thing of how it's how it is. But I know with the festivals, it's it's hugely, hugely important how the Twitter verse or whatever it's called responds to the, the film. Yeah. So we were talking to a distributor the other day and uh, this wasn't on the show. This was just a conversation that I was having, having with the distributor. And it was just really interesting to hear them talk about getting films onto the VOD platforms. And what they were saying was it's really easy to get a film for the most part onto any one of these, you know, SVOD or VOD platforms, getting the film on there really isn't the challenge anymore. Because there is just really a ton of shelf space. The challenge is getting your film known and marketed and getting people to actually buy the film. So more, and, and that's really where the, the initial question, you know, stems from in terms of using social is just how do you get your film to be known? And so, you know, it's a much larger marketing question, but I think that that, that problem, especially for independent filmmakers, uh, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, is is one of you know, it's more about marketing your film than it is about necessarily making your film at this point, because if you can't get it seen, then what's the point? 
Right, exactly. And I think there's a big, uh, you know, we've, we, we, I've fell victim to this too early on in the VOD thing, uh, you know. But I think that's a, a really important point because, you know, uh, with a, a film we did a long time ago, you know, we we went with someone that like we, you know, are we're gonna put it on VOD and you know, AT&T U-verse and this and Xbox and blah, blah, you know, it's going to be in 50 million homes and you go, oh my gosh, our movie's going to be in 50 million homes. It's going to be huge. But then nobody watched the movie because it doesn't matter if it's in 50 million homes if nobody knows what the movie is. So it's, you know, and I think that's a, a lot of people get seduced by the number because you think, well, if it's in 50 million homes or whatever, of course, someone's just going to randomly click on it, but people don't, really randomly click on stuff they want to go to something they've heard about or they've read about it you know especially now because the vod space is so much more crowded and you know it's another funny thing where there's you know not to get too much i don't know if it's like you know showing the man behind the curtain but uh it's it's a funny thing where movies are worth more money uh often in the vod space if they're named with like a number or a than they are if they're named with somewhere towards the end of the alphabet. Uh, and, you know, this is a thing where because people will click on, uh, you know, the, the, the first thing they do is go to the A through C section that also has numbers or hashtags and all that stuff. So it's, it's, been, it's a funny thing, too, now, if you go to, your, uh, go to your VOD space and click on A to C and then click on X through Z and count the numbers of movies... You know, a lot of the a lot of movies, and particularly these ones where it's just let's throw it out there, are changing their titles to something with an A. You know, uh, because they know that equals X amount of dollars. Um, so, you know, you'll see a lot of really bad titles out there that make no sense purely because they're trying to make more money on on the movie. But it makes I mean, it makes a lot of sense, obviously, for for a distributor. If, you know, a, a movie in the A section is worth 30% more than a movie with a Z title, you know, it, it, it makes sense to try to change it, I guess. So, um, anyway, but yeah, it's, it's a, VOD is it's a very funny space, and it's, it's made for a lot of uh, interesting movie titles, I'll say. <laughs> well, this has been great, uh, John. I, I really appreciate your time. I wish Gabriel had the opportunity to come back. I, I hope his, uh, his, his party's doing well. His tent I, must look really nice now. I, I, I think so. I, at least I, I hope his tent has been, you know, erected and, 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 <laughs> and they're having a few drinks on us. Yes, uh, yes. I, I bet that's what's going on right now. I, 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 he, I'm sure he will send his love when uh, the tent is finished. Well, we'll have to do this again sometime soon with Gabriel. But until then, uh, thank you for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having us. All right.